Good evening and thank you for joining us once again for the preaching of God's Word. We are here at Grace Church of Mentor and that's what we very much enjoy. We love studying the Word of God. We want to get it right and I'm thankful that you would take the time to come and to listen. I wish you could be here with me and but until then, so be it. We are just thankful that you would tune in. It is 2021 and we're thankful for God bringing us to this point. We're thankful that um, we have been able to really enjoy, and I use that word intentionally, enjoy growth in 2020, how God is changing us. Because that's the whole point. Why we're here on earth is to bring God glory by him making us more like his son, Jesus Christ. And we're called to make disciples. We're called to share the gospel. We're called to um, reflect what Christ is to our community, to our um, church family as well. So we're thankful for all of those things. Um, want to just encourage you to, uh, if you are, maybe if you've been a little bit out of the loop, I know it's easy over Christmas time especially to just kind of have a couple weeks where uh, time goes by and, and just from a, a church information wondering, okay, so what's going on? What do we, what should I expect? We're in the new year. Has anything changed? I really just want to encourage you to do two things. First of all, go on our website. If you're logging on here, you've probably already done that and you're familiar with it, but tool around. When you get on the homepage, scroll down to the bottom and see those announcements and see those things. A lot of that uh, you can you know, really catch up quite quickly as to as far as uh, any changes that are that have been made or anything that's coming up on the church calendar. I'd also encourage you to keep your eye on your email box. Each week we send uh, an update as far as what to expect. Pastor Steve usually puts together a really good video that summarizes a lot of those things and, and they're in more detail just in the text of the, the email. But I'd really encourage you to to check those things out if you've been maybe a little bit out of the loop or trying to, to get back into things. want to publicly thank you again, as Pastor Kent did this morning, for just your generosity in the Christmas offering this year and uh, seeing just how God is using you to give above and beyond what you're already giving. Um, we are just immensely blessed with uh, how God has used you in that way. So thank you want to want to just really thank you and, and beyond just your giving thank you for giving of uh, beyond just your financial giving I should say want to thank you for just giving of your time and and giving of your talents the, we would be remiss to to not give praise to God for the faithfulness of him uh, through you and how you are uh, walking and talking the faith um, from year to year and God has called us to be that, and he's called us also to rejoice in it, to delight in it, to value it. So thank you, and just want to encourage you to remain faithful. Uh, considering the author and the finisher of our faith, we look to Jesus, as Hebrews chapter 12 says, and he saw the joy that was before him, and that joy wasn't necessarily um, what he endured on the cross, but he endured on the cross so that he might experience that joy. That joy is favor from the Father, but it's also the salvation of souls. And we're part of that. And so we are thankful for that. And I thank you for your faithfulness. I trust that you have gotten a lot of rest over the, the holiday time. I hope you've been able to enjoy time with family. 
And so now we're back. Now we're in 2021. And uh, I, I guess I'm kind of the person that, that, you know, I enjoy good rest. But now that it's time to go, I, I'm kind of a guy that, like, just likes jumping in. So I'm probably just going to jump right into this uh, sermon, to be honest with you. And um, I hope that's okay. Well, why don't we pray before we do? And uh, thank you again for, for joining. And let's ask God and his blessing on this time. Father, you're good. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you how we see um, pictures of your faithfulness, not only in creation, not only in uh, just your eternal power and Godhead, but God, we also see it in the lives of people who maintain a life of godliness and holiness year after year. We thank you for their steadfastness and the fruits of the Spirit that are demonstrated in them. Lord, we thank you for um, their love for the Word and for their desire to get it right. And Lord, that's why really we're here uh, this evening to give more attention to it and to work our way through it. And we thank you that there will be a day where faith will be sight and that um, we will no longer read your word or hear your word, but we will see the word who was made flesh. We cannot wait for that day. Until then, God, may we live in faithfulness to your word. And may we love doing it as well. Incline our hearts to enjoying obedience. There are difficult times and sometimes, frankly, Lord, um, uh, we would rather disobey. We are easily drawn to what we've been called to uh, stay away from, and that is the world, and that is the flesh. So, Lord, I pray that you would incline our hearts, cause us to enjoy doing your pleasure, doing your will. Just like a child delights in pleasing their parents, may we delight in pleasing you, our Father. Uh, we thank you for the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do just that. And, Lord, protect us from the abuses of, of what could be um, and attention to doing what's right. Lord, as we look in your word this evening, as we see men who uh, really loved studying and they loved information and they loved the traditions and they loved the formality, but God, they did not love people and they didn't love you. Protect us. Show us our blind spots. Open our eyes to see what it is that we could change and must change through the power of the Spirit as your word reveals it this year, even this month. Lord, we thank you again. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are going through the book of Luke. We have been for quite some time, so if you have your Bible, why don't you go ahead and open to the book of Luke. And what I, I feel that I need to do is really just review. Let's, let's catch up. We've been going through the book of Luke for a while, and for me to jump right into Luke chapter 11, that's where we're eventually going to be. Uh, we're almost halfway through the book. But um, if we just jumped right in and didn't do some level of review, I, I feel like we'd be, uh, I don't know, playing catch up. So let's take some time, just a little bit of time, to be able to look at this book, what it's about, why we're studying it even, and what we should be getting each week we go through. You know, we, we've, we've piecemealed this book out in 
little sections. You know, we can't preach through the entirety of the book in one sitting. So we have to address it by paragraphs or by sections. And each section can have its own um, significance, especially from an application standpoint. But there are themes that are traced through the entirety of the book. And I would even say, not just through this book, but even leading into another book. Um, and that being the book of Acts. As we're reading through the book of Luke, we're also looking forward to the book of Acts because their authors are the same, Luke. So before we jump right into Luke chapter 11, let's take some time to review very briefly. In this gospel, and there are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Luke is the third of the four, uh, goes pretty neatly with Mark and Matthew. Those are called the synoptic gospels. Maybe you've heard that term before. Luke is the third of the synoptic gospels. And he presents Jesus, the story of Jesus Christ. He presents Jesus as the son of man. But as he's presenting Jesus as the son of man, he's showing how Jesus is at one time being rejected by his own people, Israel, and at another time being offered, offering himself and offering the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. So in this presentation, in the book of Luke, and again, moving towards the book of Acts, we see Jesus presented as a universal savior to both Jew and Gentile. The theme of Acts, where you see the gospel moving forward, starting in Jerusalem with the Jews. You see the apostles spreading the gospel. You see the church formed at Pentecost. And then you see the gospel moving from Judea into Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world once you get to the end of Acts 28. Well, this is the genesis of that. Luke is uh, written to a, a particular individual. His name's Theophilus. And Acts is the next chapter of that gospel where it's the apostles carrying the gospel of Jesus Christ to the rest of the world. So in Luke we're having, as we're working through this book, we're, we're keeping that theme in mind here. That the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to the ends of the earth and what we see along the way in Luke are these snippets of activity where you have Jesus who is the son of God, who is the son of man, he is the Jewish Messiah. But you also see the nation of Israel rejecting, some accepting, but by and large the nation of Israel rejecting, which allows for, in God's plan, the offer of salvation to the Gentiles. Now as we've worked our way through Luke, we've seen attention given to those things time and time again. Jesus rejected by Israel, Jesus offering salvation to the Gentiles. We've seen Jesus perform many great signs showing that he was the Messiah. He's healed the sick. He's raised the dead. He's fed thousands. He's cast out demons. All of this in public view. And by the way, all of this in Jewish territory. Jesus had come to save Israel. And there were many Jews that followed after him, starting with his parents, his biological mother, and his earthly father, Mary and Joseph. We also see his aunt and uncle and, and, and even cousin. We see Zechariah and Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. And we see their son who would be the one prophesied by Malachi to be a messenger in the wilderness, crying out the coming of the Messiah. We see other Jews, common men and women, becoming followers of Jesus Christ. Twelve of them would be disciples. 
One of them would be a wolf in sheep's clothing, as it were. But there would be others that Luke points out in his gospel account. Added to these followers were those of really little social standing, like women, like the poor, like tax collectors, and then even Gentiles. The Jewish religious leaders during this time, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, were really a source of contention to Jesus. And, and he regularly challenged them on their own understanding and application of Old Testament scripture. In fact, we, we see one account in, in Luke 7 where Jesus heals the centurion's child. And he says of the centurion's faith, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Again, foreshadowing to the offer of salvation to the Gentiles. One particular way that Jesus challenged the Jewish leaders, these Pharisees and these teachers of the law or experts of the law, uh, some translations even use the word lawyers. In fact, the text that we're going to be looking at today, just as a side note, the text we're looking at today, uh, depending on your translation, it may say that the lawyers were there. When we think lawyer, we think someone who perhaps in, in our, our, we think of lawyer in a 21st century role. Here, this is someone who would be an expert of the law or an expert of the Mosaic law. These were teachers. Um, one of the ways that Jesus challenged these Pharisees and teachers of the law was by showing them his spiritual authority. In chapter 4, Jesus taught in the synagogue and challenged the Jews to accept him as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In chapter 6, Jesus asserted his lordship over the Sabbath, where he and the disciples, remember, they, were, they plucked grain and they were, they were uh, eating it. And the, the, the spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, were challenging, saying, why are you working on the Sabbath? That same day, he also healed an individual. And Jesus confronted the religious leaders in their, their, their uh, ability to discern whether or not that was lawful. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to heal someone? I mean, what kind of a question is that? And yet, there were those who challenged Jesus, saying that it was unlawful for him to perform a miracle on the Sabbath. Yet, Christ was the Lord of the Sabbath. That was his point. He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. In chapter 7, Jesus rebuked the Jews' rejection of John the Baptist. And in chapter 11, Jesus rebuked their rejection of even him when he cast out a demon. This chapter that we're going to be reading earlier in the chapter, he casts out a demon, and they assign the authority to do that to Satan. And Jesus confronts them and confronts the blasphemy, challenging their authority. Those who were of Israel, those who were the Pharisees, those who were the teachers of the law were the most ignorant when it came to knowing who Jesus was and knowing that he was their authority. Now today, in this passage, we're going to be looking in Luke 11, verses 37 through 54. And Jesus comes and again asserts his authority over, first of all, the understanding of the law, but more importantly, these religious leaders, these Pharisees and these teachers of the law. He confronts them. And he doesn't confront them in a warm and cordial way. And as we're going to, I'm going to read the entirety of this passage. As we look at this, we have to rem be reminded that Jesus had a greater context. 
to this conversation. Meaning this, first of all, he knew the hearts of these spiritual leaders. He knew their hearts. He knew what was in them. And so when Jesus talked to them, he said exactly what needed to be said, exactly the way it needed to be said. In other words, there wasn't someone that came alongside Jesus to kind of soften the message, to make it more palatable to these Pharisees and teachers of the law. Also, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they saw what Jesus did publicly. He didn't perform miracles in private. Now, he did tell people not to tell anyone who he was because there was a necessary order to the ministry and the plan of God. But Jesus performed miracles in the presence of these very people, these people that he's going to rebuke. So lest you think, when we read Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54, lest you think Jesus was having a bad day, he's not having a bad day. He's saying exactly what needs to be said in the exact way that it needs to be said. And we, in turn, should submit not only to what he said, but the implications to us in the here and now. So let's read together. I want to read the entire passage just to give us context. I've tried to give greater context for the book, but let's get some context here in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 37. Now when Jesus had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him. And he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe and mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. One of the lawyers, or teachers of the law, said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. But he said, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with your burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them the prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some they will persecute, so that the blood of all of the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. When he, Jesus, left there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects, plotting against him to catch him in something he might say. Now, we start in verse 37 where Jesus is invited to the house of a Pharisee. 
and he's invited for a meal. So Jesus is a guest. This isn't the first time he's going to be invited to a Pharisee's house. This took place also in Luke chapter 7. This isn't going to be the last time he's invited to a Pharisee's place for a meal. That will also take place in Luke 14. So Luke gives attention in his gospel to Jesus being invited as a guest of the Pharisees. And the point of conflict here really is found in verse 38. The Pharisee was surprised that Jesus had not first washed before the meal. Now, my translation says ceremonially washed. And I think that's really helpful because the issue here isn't Jesus having dirt on his hands or somehow not being, you know, un being clean and, and having germs. Germs are the issue. The issue here is the fact that these Jews, these Pharisees in particular, prescribed a way to wash or to be ceremonially clean and in their eyes spiritually clean that was above what the law demanded. You see, Jesus was not ignoring any part of the law, nor did he. He never ignored the law. But he would ignore the Pharisees' extra-biblical, if I can put it that way, demands that were really more about show, for lack of better words. More about pageantry. This ceremonial, ceremonial washing, the water had to be poured just so. It could only come as high as a person's wrist, not the forearms. If the, if the, if the water touched the forearms of a person washing their hands, the, the Mishnah says here, um, uh, that, that person wouldn't be ceremonially clean, so they'd have to do it again, presumably. Their hands can't be rubbed against one another. There were very specific, very ostentatious, showy uh, practices. And Jesus came in, <laughs> sat down, and was ready to eat. Again, the issue isn't physical cleanliness. The issue was, in the Pharisees' eyes, spiritual cleanliness. And Jesus wasn't that. And it wasn't just a matter of, well, he didn't wash his hands. It says here, when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially uh, washed his hands before the meal. So this was something that wasn't just he, something he thought. This was something brought to the attention of all of the guests present. A show of outward piety made up of man-made rules others would watch and ultimately congratulate each other was something that Jesus was having none of. Jesus was openly criticized for not participating in this ritual, one that wasn't, like I said, prescribed by the law. Now, Luke is describing here the rejection of Jesus by Israel, going back to verse 14. We alluded to that before. But this passage describes the condemnation that he brought on them and their resulting rejecting rejection of him and their hostility towards him. I mean, we read the end of the passage, verses 53 and 54, remember? Where it says they began to be very hostile and question him closely. In fact, some translations describe this as fiercely opposing him and besieging him with questions. It wasn't just a matter of, hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? Or Jesus, hmm, you know, what's your opinion? It was a fierce opposition, antagonizing him. So what Jesus did going into this lunch really stirred up a hornet's nest when it came to the Pharisees. But again, 
Let's be reminded, Jesus did exactly what needed to be done. And Jesus said exactly what needed to be said for them to hear exactly what they needed to hear. Jesus came to bring truth. And frankly, for those convinced that they had truth already, he was to bring a rude awakening. And this rude awakening was they didn't understand the truth. You know, this should be instructive to us as well as we minister to our Jewish friends. And I do want to just make a, a, a short, but I think appropriate application. A lot of times when we have those who we love, who are of the Jewish faith, we approach them as if, well, they just believe the Old Testament and they don't believe the New Testament. And so, you know, we can at least agree on the Old Testament. But let me remind you, these Pharisees, they believe the Old Testament. But if they truly believed the Old Testament, they would have received Jesus Christ. And let's keep this in mind as we share the gospel with our Jewish friends. That while we love them, we must realize that there is a fundamental misunderstanding of the Old Testament. In other words, if they truly understood and believed the Old Testament, they would accept Jesus Christ. They wouldn't reject him. The Pharisees actually show a lot about how we should view the Jewish unbeliever. Their problem really is with understanding the Old Testament itself. In that there's an assumption that there's an understanding when in fact there isn't. Remember Jesus on the road to Emmaus? Um, where after the resurrection, actually this is in Luke, Luke chapter 24, where he's speaking with the two individuals on the road to Emmaus, and they're you know, still under the, the notion that Jesus was dead. They were mourning, and, and Jesus approaches them, but their eyes were blinded. They didn't know who he was. And so he started to talk with them and ask them about what's going on. And it says there in Luke 24 that Jesus, beginning with the law and the prophets, explained how they all pointed to Christ. That's significant. Because a true understanding of the law, the prophets, and the writings necessarily leads to an acceptance of Jesus Christ. Let's keep that in mind. And from a point of application, we may not see the overt hostility that Jesus saw from our Jewish friends, but we have to recognize it's more than just, well, they just believe the Old Testament. No, there's a spiritual blinding that must be removed for them to truly understand the Old Testament. So Jesus came to bring truth. Now, the flow of thought here, like we mentioned before, Luke was showing how the gospel would arrive to the uttermost parts of the world. Remember, we have kind of this, this um, mile marker in the distance, and that is Acts 28. Acts 28 is the uttermost parts. The gospel is reaching the uttermost parts. As we're working through Luke and as we're seeing this response of the, the Jewish leadership, we're keeping that in mind. How is it that we get to the gospel, this, this Jewish Messiah, and the news about him, how do we get it to the uttermost parts of the world? Well, this is part of that plan. So Jesus was not there in this particular event, not simply there to have a debate or to just kindly talk about, about you know, facts. No, 
Jesus was there because he knew their hearts. He knew that they needed that dose of reality. He says, woe to you, six different times in these eight verses. And when you hear the word woe, we need to think really as the opposite of blessed. Okay, you remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Right? This is a, this is a, a, a position of divine favor. Blessed. Woe is the antithesis or the opposite of that. So when Jesus is saying woe, he's not speaking of divine favor. He's speaking of divine disfavor. Woe. To be blessed is to have God's favor. To receive woe is to have God's wrath. They were to be judged ultimately for two reasons. Their hypocrisy and then the negative impact of those who followed them. Jesus didn't have to qualify himself. You know, when we, when we see this um, response of the, uh, the lawyers or the, the, uh, the teachers of the law in verse 45, you know, one of the lawyers said to him in the reply, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. From a human standpoint, we would, uh, we would almost understand, like if we're actually putting ourselves in this situation, we would understand Jesus would be like, well, let me put it differently. Or, uh, I'm not trying to insult you. I mean, no offense, but Jesus didn't say any of that. What does he do in verse 46? But he said, woe to you lawyers as well. Yeah, it's bad for them. And you should be insulted because you are underneath divine wrath. This is what they needed to hear. And it couldn't have been stated better any other way. And it shouldn't have been stated any other way. And so as we look at this passage, I want to simply bring out three areas that Jesus was rebuking them for. And then we, in turn, should guard ourselves against. We aren't Pharisees. We aren't underneath the Old Testament law. But... The charges that Jesus brought against these spiritual leaders, we as Christians, especially those of us who have been in Christ for quite some time, we should guard ourselves against, okay? So let's look at these three areas that Jesus rebuked them. And, and let's also keep in mind here, I guess going into, the, going into this, that Jesus' desire is not simply just to lay the hammer down and then leave, you know, have you ever heard that, that illustration of someone who, you know, in a conversation, they kind of lob a grenade in the room, and they leave, and, and they, they let everybody else deal with the, the, the collateral damage? That's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is rebuking them. Why? So that they would repent. So that they would do righteously. That they would truly honor the law. That they would make him their Lord and Savior. But let's look at these three rebukes. The first one is this. Jesus rebuked them for their outward appearance of godliness, yet inward emptiness. He rebuked them for their outward appearance of godliness, yet their inward emptiness. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup, and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. I could just imagine, he's there at lunch, right? And so there's utensils, there's plates, there's cups. I could just imagine him picking up a cup and just say, you clean the outside of this. But inside, it's polluted, it's dirty. 
Verse 40, you foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. What's he saying? God created the outside. And frankly, what the Pharisees were doing on the outside at some level was okay. You say, wait a second, really? Well, look at verse 42. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Meaning, they were adding extra biblical rules going so far as tithing even their herbs. The law did not demand that they tithe every herb. Okay? You can read the Old Testament. It did not demand that. This was something that they did. They did it out of perhaps piety. Maybe it started that way. Maybe their intentions were good to begin with. I don't know. But the fact is, is that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for going to that length. No, he rebukes them because they went to that length and yet were blind to the most obvious parts of righteousness. You say the most right, obvious parts. What do you mean? Well, remember how Jesus summarized the law? What is the law? Honor God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. They had this outward appearance of godliness, but an inward emptiness from the standpoint of they went to incredible lengths, yet inwardly were empty because they truly did not honor God. They did not obey the law. When they tied their herbs, they were going above and beyond what the law demanded. But the problem here was that they were selective in their obedience. What they chose to obey, they honored beyond even what God demanded, but what they neglected, they did at the expense of honoring the big picture. And you know what? We can, be, we can do this too. Let's be honest. There are some aspects of obedience that um, are more comfortable, perhaps, are more obvious to us, and we can really place a high priority on obeying in this way. And we can give even an outer semblance of obedience. And yet, when we look at the whole of Scripture and we look at all of the ways where God has called us to obey, we're going to continue to find that there's going to be blind spots. There's going to be areas where we need to grow. Here, the Pharisees, they were great at tithing their herbs, but they were terrible at helping the poor. They were fantastic at making sure that they abided by ceremonial washing laws, rules, traditions. But they were horrendous at loving those who were less privileged than them. They gave the appearance of spiritual life, but inwardly they were spiritually dead. In verse 39, it talks about how they had greed or robbery and wickedness. And in verse 41, Jesus said that they should be generous to the poor. And his criticism extended also to their love of recognition, being publicly acknowledged as spiritual leaders in front of others. What they seemed to lack the most was loving their neighbor as their self. Christ said that along with loving God, this commandment, it is the fulfillment of the law. The teachers of the law, the Pharisees, missed the law. 
They missed it. Why? Because outwardly they were one thing, but inwardly they were something else. We must guard against having the outward appearance of godliness, yet inward emptiness. Secondly, we must guard against rejecting sound teaching and teachers. Look at verse 47. Woe to you, for you build tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you build their tombs. For this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill, and some of them they will persecute. Now these Pharisees, what have they done? They weren't guilty of killing Zechariah. They weren't kill it, guilty of killing Abel. I mean, that was Cain, right? That was the others. Those, those were people in the past. These Pharisees probably listening to Jesus thinking, what in the world is he talking about? But let's be honest. In verse 49, Jesus says, I will send. I will send speaks of a future tense. The context is not just the prophets of old, but those who would come with the apostles, Christians. They rejected, these Pharisees rejected John the Baptist. They rejected Jesus, they rejected Stephen, they rejected James, they rejected virtually, virtually all the apostles who would become martyrs, many of which at the hands of the Jews themselves. I mean, in Acts chapter 7, Paul himself, Saul, would have been guilty of what Jesus was describing here. No, they may not have killed the prophets of the Old Testament, but they were killing the preachers of the New. They were rejecting them. They were rejecting sound doctrine. Why? Because it served as a threat to them. This teaching that Jesus brought ultimately was a teaching that demanded their submission, demanded that they acknowledge him as their authority. And they would have none of that. Rejecting sound teaching and teachers. We must guard. You say, how do we do that? I mean, we're listening to this sermon for crying out loud. How would we reject, you know, sound teaching and sound teachers? Well, to this point, I, I, I would say, and, and this is where I think the story, though in Luke 11 looks bleak, I think the story does have a positive turn to it. Because in the life of a believer, one of the evidences of assurance of salvation is perseverance. Not just perseverance in good works, but perseverance in truth. Perseverance in right teaching. But the child of God will not settle for false teaching, and if he's made, or she is made aware of false teaching or false, uh, false doctrine, that, that they won't tolerate it. That, that there will be a desire to know and adhere to the truth of God's word. And so when it comes to hearing difficult truth, maybe even, <laughs> maybe even in the manner with which Jesus confronted these Pharisees, there may be a time where you and I require that level of conf confrontation confrontation because of an error, because of a 
a, 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 a way where we are not living rightly, where we are confronted and we're confronted severely, what do we do? Well, we respond like a David who was confronted by Nathan. I am the guilty party. We respond like a Saul of Tarsus. Remember, he was one of these men. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee, it says, right? And I believe it's uh, Philippians chapter 3. He was the creme de la creme of this religious group that Jesus was just raking over the coals. But remember, the whole goal of this wasn't just to rake them over the coals. The goal of this was to rebuke them so that they might repent. Saul rejected Christ, rejected Christ, persecuted Christ, persecuted Christians, yet what? Was confronted with his sin, repented, and the person who sat under this rebuke became an instrument of righteousness. One of the greatest instruments of righteousness and teaching in the whole New Testament. I say, be careful, be warned against rejecting sound teaching and teachers, but I also say, be patient for those who are or who have been rebuked, will be rebuked, that they may turn and be born again. Pastor Kent spoke on this this morning, that, that we don't have the right to put a period at the end of the sentence of a person's life. We can't just write someone off. Praise God for that. So we're warned. We're warned against having the outward appearance of godliness, but inward emptiness. We're warned against rejecting sound teaching and teachers. And then finally, we're warned about being obstacles to others believing the truth. We're warned about being obstacles to others believing the truth. Look at verse 52. Woe to you, teachers of the law, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. We also see a hint of this hindrance back in verse 44. Verse 44, woe to you for you, he's talking to the Pharisees here, for you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. This would have especially hit home to the Pharisees because walking over a tomb resulted in ceremonial uncleanness. This resulted in them being spiritually defiled. So having a tomb that you're walking over and you don't realize it, there's an ignorance of one's spiritual defilement. And what Paul is saying is, or I'm sorry, what Jesus is saying here is that these teachers, these Pharisees, were actually obstacles to believing the truth, being teachers of the law. They were creating burdens with the law. They were creating hostility towards Jesus. We've looked at the hostility towards Jesus already, but look at this creating burdens with the law. It says in verse 46, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with your burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What they were doing was more than just being hypocritical. It was more than just being uh, creating dissension against Jesus. They were creating these rules in addition to the law, but they weren't providing any level of assistance to the people that were expected to obey them. And you know what? That's what legalism does. Legalism 
and it's proper, properly defined. Legalism is adding something to God's word in order to achieve righteousness in God's sight. It's adding something to the word with the goal of achieving righteousness. And here, these Pharisees, these legalists, were adding these rules saying that Jesus should have washed his hands or washed them in a certain way. But Jesus confronts them on them adding these burdens, but not assisting others when they themselves can't bear them. So what legalism here was doing was it was requiring something of someone without actually coming alongside and giving them a way of help. And, and in a sense, that's kind of what legalism does. Legalism stands back and points the finger and says, you're not good enough. You haven't done enough. Well, okay, can you help me? No. These Pharisees, these teachers of the law, teachers, leaders, they weren't helpers. They were obstacles instead. As we grow in our faith in Christ, and as we grow in godliness, we will simultaneously or at least we ought to simultaneously grow in our love for our spiritual family to where we come alongside and assist them rather than stand at a distance and be frustrated by their immaturity or their lack of obedience. Jesus was confronting their hypocrisy and their, their, their being obstacles to the truth really what they ought to have been was sincere in their obedience, but then assistants and helpers of these Jews to truly see Jesus for who he really was. I mean, imagine. We too. God has not placed us just simply to be storehouses of information. And listen, I love you when I share this, but if you're simply listening to the sermon as just that much more information about the book, about the book of Luke, about the Bible, about who Jesus was. If you're trying to find a nugget of truth that, you know, maybe intellectually kind of satisfies you, or, wow, that was a great point. And we don't have it, at least as part of the application, how am I going to implement this as I minister to my brothers and sisters in Christ? If all this is is just information gathering, and it doesn't factor into our spiritual family, then we are, are, are just like these Pharisees. Because now we're more informed. Perhaps the rest are less informed. And we can take an attitude of arrogance, of elitism. Why aren't they obeying? Boy, I hope so-and-so is listening to this sermon. Let's be on guard. Because at that point, we then become obstacles to the truth in our own arrogance. So we see these three points of warning that Jesus had. Be warned against the outward appearance of godliness, yet having inward emptiness. Be warned about rejecting sound teaching and teachers. Be warned about being obstacles to others believing the truth. We too, we can't look at the Pharisees, we can't look at the teachers of the law and say, God, we're not like that. Let's be warned. And this is what the warning passages of Scripture do. You know, further in the, the New Testament. You know, 
Yes, this is directed to the Pharisees. Yes, this is, this is Jesus talking to a Jewish audience. We get that. However, we'd be remiss if we didn't see ourselves as having the possibility of slipping into those same patterns of behavior that the Pharisees did, especially given all that we know, all that we have available to us from a knowledge standpoint. Jesus came offering his lordship, offering salvation. Jesus came so that we might repent and follow him. And by God's grace, many of us have. Yet, we must be on guard for those tendencies that come with maturity, with the accumulation of information or knowledge. The tendencies that come from detaching ourselves and perhaps just focusing more on what interests us. As we go into 2021, 2021, I should say, let's be mindful of the tendency to detach ourselves or to remain detached from our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, I'm preaching to an empty room. You might be listening to this in the comfort of your own living room. We have the blessing of gathering together, and that's been our pattern. That's the pattern of the church for centuries. That's the commandment to the church. Let's not mistake accumulation of data or accumulation of information with authentic Christian living. Let's be mindful of these warnings and, and let's heed them. And in turn, let's continue to grow both in the knowledge, both in the grace and knowledge, but then also in love for one another. Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you for our time. Thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. Even thank you for the example of Paul, who was a Pharisee, yet repented and believed. Lord, we think of our own conversions and what you saved us from and what you're saving us to. I pray that we might heed these warnings. May we be authentic and not fake. Lord, you said earlier in this, in this book that you see all things and all things will be revealed in your sight. That day of judgment, Lord, we're not going to be able to hide. May we be authentic inwardly and outwardly. God, may we adhere to sound teaching. We live in a time where there is more available information about the Bible, about theories, books, podcasts, websites, blogs. God, may we adhere to sound teaching. And Lord, may we be endeared to those who teach us, especially within the context of local, local church. May we be mutually accountable to one another. And then God, protect us from being obstacles to those who would believe. May we be lovers. May we be those who are patient with all men and seek to accompany the growth of others, even if they are perhaps less mature than us. And Lord, may we uh, rejoice in the patience that those uh, who are more mature than us have extended towards us. Lord, there have been so many people who have been so patient with me and will continue to be patient. Lord, I thank you for them. I pray that I might emulate their example. So Lord, we love you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for giving this time uh, to hearing the word. Lord willing, we'll be back next week uh, looking at Luke chapter 12. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Please keep one another in prayer and uh, have a great week.